Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Bring yourself back online. No one knows what I'm thinking. Tell us what you think of your world. This is just a cheap trick. Some people choose to see the ugliness in this world. The disarray. I choose to see the beauty. Welcome to Still Watching Westworld, an unofficial podcast about the HBO series Westworld. I'm Vanny Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. Each week, we'll break down the latest theories, baffling questions, and hidden illusions, as well as occasionally chat with someone who has worked on the show itself. At the end of this week's episode, we'll have an interview with actor Simon Quarterman, who plays Lee Sizemore. We will be discussing and spoiling only up to Season 2, Episode 5, Akane no Mai, directed by Craig Zobel, uh, written by Gina Atwater, Dan Deitz, and the Nolans also have a writing credit on it. Um... I should say off the top that we are loving all the emails that we've been getting for you. You guys are doing such a great job sending in like theories and like really nice words. And it's so lovely. Uh, we don't have anything that's like super relevant to this particular episode that we're going to read this week, but please do keep sending emails to uh, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We're loving your emails. So thank you so much. And I, I, I should say that the reason we don't have emails to the episode is because um, it's my fault. We're recording in advance because I just have to go to Cannes <laughs> to go to the film festival there. So that that's why we, but we are reading the emails. We are loving loving getting the, the feedback and the questions and the corrections. I don't mind the corrections. <laughs> but I mean, this this episode is a little bit off the map anyway. So um, yeah, but we are going to divide it into we're going to do some uh, Dolores stuff and some Maeve stuff. Our, our two leading ladies are going to split yeah. our time. Uh, so we're going to dive right in. We we're going to start with one quick scene that is not 
quite related to either as far as we know, uh, which is we see this pile of dead bodies, um, I think at, at HQ at like the Mesa. Uh, and uh, Antoine Costa, the character played by Ferris Ferris, says one third of the hosts that they like fished out of the lake, these are all the drowned hosts, including Teddy, uh, are wiped clean, they're virginal. And the Carl Strand character, who we remember as like Delos, like muckety muck, says, so we lost one third of our IP. Um, and this is like, this is the scenario that Charlotte uh, was so worried about in season one of like the IP going, uh, if, if stuff goes amok in the park. And this is why the Abernathy figure is so important because he's got all that IP jammed into his head. So, um, and then meanwhile, Bernard looks on confused, which is like Jeffrey Wright's main, uh, role this season, it would seem to be. Uh, and Strand wants to know what happened and the camera pans to Teddy on top of the pile. So I have some thoughts about this. Do you have any thoughts about this? Uh, I don't really understand it. <laughs> um, uh, I don't understand what the virgin thing means. Um, he said that it's as if they were never had any coding to be or something to begin with, right? Yeah. Um. So I'm. I was a bit lost with this. I had to watch it twice, and I still don't quite know what's being gotten at. I guess. So I think. Okay. So here's my theory, and once again, this is inspired by your Trojan Horse comment, like way back before, <laughs> which is that um, we've seen a lot of resurrection this season, um, of of Dolores specifically, like bringing hosts back from the dead. Uh, so I like this idea of, of the Trojan horse, Trojan host of these drowned hosts. Um, like now they're where Dolores wants them to be, which is inside the Mesa. And if she can resurrect them there, then they've got, then she's got a host army right, in the right. Mesa. And we found out in this episode that like, uh, you know, spoilers for the end of this episode, but like she doesn't kill Teddy. She like seems to reprogram him. So mm -hmm. it's not so like Teddy feels like uh, still an operative for Dolores. So wherever Teddy is, is where Dolores maybe wants him to be. So let's go back to this like weird theory we had last week that like maybe it's Arnold in Bernard. Maybe it's Dolores and Bernard. We're not sure like who's in Bernard, but like, let's say, it's the ringleader of whatever uprising is going to continue to happen. So that means they've smuggled, they've Trojan horsed all these bodies in, robot bodies in where they want them to be. And you've got one like active and awake host there that could resurrect them. Right. That's a crazy theory, but like it's... Uh, yeah, it makes sense though. I, I, I kind of like it as like, why are all these bodies there? You know, right. why are we watching yep. these bodies? And the, and the wiped clean to me means like... Dolores or whoever wiped them uh, doesn't want like if they're in on a plan, she doesn't want these Delos people to be able to like play back their video uh, of the plan. So they've like wiped the security cameras basically out of their own heads is sort of what right. I felt like it meant. So. All right. Fair enough. Mike, that, that makes sense. That's my thought. I'm not I'm not convinced of it, but I'm thinking about it. OK, so. Uh, let's just do some Dolores stuff, uh, before we get into like really the meat of the episode, which is the Maeve stuff. But, um, we find after, after the events of last week where they lost Abernathy and Dolores is looking very disappointed in Teddy, or it was like two weeks ago because there's no Dolores in the last episode, but Dolores was looking like disappointed in Teddy for not killing the Krata character who died the next week anyway. So you might as well have done that, Teddy. Uh, they ride into Sweetwater and we see the town, uh, you know, has been 
assaulted the player piano's back uh and it's clear what dolores wants here is she wants the train she tells her people to like strip it for speed and you know they're going they're going somewhere and mm-hmm. that's what it seems like um and they and they make it really clear in that opening shot that they still have uh the Dallas tech with them he like looks back at the camera and it's like don't worry we still have someone who can operate a tablet you and i were talking last week right. about like how every group has their tech with them yep. and, and this guy is theirs so yeah no it's funny um and, I, and then i loved this next part where they walk into the mariposa and the new and it, it and this interacts a little bit uh cleverly with the other plot so us doing it out of order does it a bit of a disservice but we're we're in the mariposa the new clementine is there and then the original clementine uh who's been lobotomized and is very confused is like watching this other person say her lines and the actress um angela seraphan i think is how you pronounce her name uh she like her face she's got such a great face like it's great great to cast her no matter what but her eyes are just so enormous and i don't know if they have like a cloudy contact filter on them this season or if that's just what they look like but just like she is the best at looking shell-shocked of like anyone i think i've ever seen do you know like yeah you know and she's been such a constant presence since the beginning and she hasn't had a ton to do yeah but like she is a kind of a go-to when they need some sort of evocative reaction shot there she is you know yeah yeah they're they're that amazing faces, and um, I think she's one of those characters that's really stuck with people. People complain all the time that there are too many characters in Westworld; they don't know who anyone is. But Clementine, for some reason, I think has really made an impact on people. Uh, and once again, I would I would chalk a lot of that up to the performance because, like, I remember when they they replaced Clementine in season one, and like, no offense to that actress who I have actually seen be great in other things. Like, I'm like, this is such like a basic bi- bitch version of like original Clementine time who's so much more interesting do you know what i mean so um and i think intentionally so but um yeah and then uh you know dolores is basically like revisiting all of her favorite old spots because she takes teddy out to like you know the place where they always love to watch the cows in the middle of the field there and um you know she's talking to him and and she uh you know as you would if you i think richard were in the middle of a field uh with james marzen wants to talk to him about cow diseases right that's what you would do with james marzen well yes but i i would do it euphemistically (laughs) so she's trying to this is another test that poor teddy fails because he's too nice and sweet and dumb i guess and uh you know, she asks, like, basically, what you would, what would you do with the cow plague? And he's like, protect the weak and shelter them, and blah, blah, blah. She's like, cool. No. The actual answer is burn them all. So, fun story. That's what you should have, that's what you should have picked. Um, and then we get, um, hmm, like this exposition thing where they were like, oh, one last, we've got one last night here in town before we're going to do whatever it is we're doing next. And this is a trope we've seen a million times in, in movies and TV shows of like, uh, one night's rest before we go. So what do you do? Obviously, um, you have sex with James Marsden, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, well, this, 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 this sex, um, I think I I was G chatting you when I was watching the episode. Um, is this the first romantic love scene we've seen between two hosts? Because we've seen Maeve um, like doing it, but like this is like passionate and sort of full of emotion. Is that the first time we've seen that? I think the 
uh, time that like Hector and Maeve had sex while like the fire was burning around them in season okay, one. Yeah. But that was more like lustful passion and this yeah. is more like tender passion, I would right. say. Yeah. This was like a like a, like a gentle love scene. Yeah. And, and, I, and it's just interesting that two hosts. I don't know. Yeah. No, absolutely. And uh, Evan Rachel Wood, I think, did say in interviews that like Dolores would have a sexual awakening this season. I mean, it's certainly like the first time Dolores has had sex where she has been like the most in control of the situation as she's ever been, you know? And especially for a host who was built uh, in some ways. Well, I mean, she's built to be sexually assaulted, really, but like not built for, but that was her loop for so long. Um, and, and so for her to like be in command of her own sexual experience, it's, it's pretty powerful. Um, also James Marsden's, uh, you know, puts, puts his, uh, gives the HBO subscribers what they want, which is some, some, uh, ass. So I don't, I, I, didn't, well. I didn't have like a graceful way to land that sentence. So I just landed it with us, but you know, yeah. Uh, I didn't mind. I'll just say that <laughs> this is this is now like Kit Harrington's job on Game of Thrones, and I guess it's James Mars's job for right now in Westworld. But um, we uh, and then they like wake up the next morning, or no, later that night, and Dolores creepily is sort of standing over him, and she's like, "I have to show you something," and she takes him into I don't know whatever a, a good a good general good store, talks to him about like her feelings for him and how she has determined that she really does love him, which is sort of like, I feel like the opposite conclusion that was reached, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Anyway, but she's like, I love you, Teddy, but uh, you are not going to make it for the fight that's coming. So, and then I definitely thought she was going to kill him right then and there. That's what I thought was going to happen because we've seen dead Teddy. So I thought yeah. that that was... De- cool. Daddy. 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 <laughs> uh, but instead of killing him, it looks like she's hard rebooting his personality uh, using her friendly local tech to mess around on the tablet with him uh, to make him, I would guess, more aggressive. The kind of person yeah. that would burn a bunch of cows, you know, like... Well, on the tablet, they do up the aggression bar. Okay. Great. All the way to the top, which is like that's a little dangerous. <laughs> like, dangerous. <laughs> like, like, what if he like aggresses upon you? You know, like, yeah. um, it's a risky move, but, uh, but, but what it does in future episodes, hopefully, it present uh the opportunity for James Marsden to like do something we haven't really seen him do before. Yeah. So this, I had a couple thoughts about that. Number one is that where it's like, oh, this is a fun thing on Westworld where like if you've written a character and it doesn't really work, which I would argue. In some ways, the Teddy character doesn't hasn't ever really worked uh, after that first reveal that like he wasn't a guest, he was a host. Like it's really no knock on Marsden, but it's not fair to him that they've written him as this sort of like bland, like staunch leading man, whatever. And I was like, yeah. oh, how fun for the writers of Westworld. They're like, we can just hard reboot this character, totally, <laughs> and give Marsden something else to do, something more worthy of his talents. So um, yeah, because what they've been trying to do in this second season. Um, they really didn't know what to do with him in the first season. Yeah. And now that they set him up as this kind of moral counterweight to Dolores slash Wyatt's, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but like he's too ineffectual to even like register in right. that way. Like because Dolores slash Wyatt is just gonna be like, I- I'm like, uh, no, I'm not even paying attention to that. So. So, yeah, the- he needed a-, a reboot. And and I think, you know, it was clever of the show to to do it in this way, I guess. 
Uh, yeah, I, I thought that was like it's clever and it's convenient and it's one. It's another way in which the uh, the writers of Westworld the show and the writers of Westworld the park like blur the lines. You know what I mean? Like, oh, let's just change this character into something else and and that'll make our show better. Uh, and then the other thing is like this is such like of all, we've seen Dolores as uh, slash Wyatt slash whatever you want to call her this season do some like uh transgressive stuff this is the most transgressive right for her to take this trusted person who like just moments ago was like whatever we're gonna do we're gonna do it together eyes open on the future like you and me she's like cool here's your new personality like she didn't kill him but she basically killed him and that is uh and for her own game she's playing god you know in in a way that we've talked about is disturbing um, I just think this is a huge moment of like Dolores gone too far. She'd already gone too far. This is really this is beyond the pale, I think. So yeah. 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 Um and 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 you know, like again, we were talking last week a bit about like um whether or not this is all programming from Robert or if she really is autonomous and sentient and all that. Um this feels like a deviation from something, you know, but like who knows? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, well, I guess we'll, f- yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to believe that, that Arnold and Robert, um, when they wanted her to wake up, this was not what they had in mind, but maybe it was, I don't know. We'll see. Um, and then I guess, yeah, that's it for the Dolores plotline, right? Like, yeah. And, and sort of in earlier episodes, we've, we've both expressed a little bit of like a, eh, about the whole Dolores plotline. Yeah. And and in this episode, it's so starkly contrasted by some of the most fun stuff the show's ever done yeah. in the Shogun World stuff, where part of the Shogun World stuff, I mean, not toward the end, is a comedy, you yeah. know, like the first like several scenes in this new realm yeah. are really funny. And it's the show being playful about its own, you know, D- DNA and its own kind of in- uh, architecture. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Every time they cut back to Dolores, I was like, uh, even even with the like the promise of uh, a naked James Mars, and I was like, mm, eh, I could go back to Shogun World anytime now. So yeah, I mean, wh- I feel bad that we keep. I do feel bad that we keep hammering at this because I really love Evan Rachel Wood, and I just want her to have the best plot line and i don't think she does this here's the problem with with that and and it's a problem that many television shows have suffered over the years um no one really liked ryan atwood they liked seth cohen yeah you know but you need you need a ryan atwood you need a dolores but like everyone's like all right but let's go to mave and everybody else you know um it's just kind of a, a fundamental problem sometimes of of shows where um, you need this sort of, I mean, not that Dolores is by any means like a golden, you know, she's not like a moral center or anything, but like, she's this sort of hero that, that, that the narrative needs, but like the, the, the side characters are, are just more compelling because their narrative is less, um, you know, it's a little bit more complex, I guess. Yeah. And less burdened with whatever the like, um, thematic so, weight of yeah, the show is. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think I'm just like a hair older than you, which means that my uh context- So you're like twenty four? Yeah, 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 yeah. Twenty four. Yeah, yeah, um yeah, my yeah. context for that is is Dawson and Pacey on Dawson's Creek. Oh, absolutely. No yeah. one cares no, about I- Dawson, it's all about Pacey. So yeah. but it's called Dawson's Creek. So, you know. All right. So let us go to Shogun World. This is really exciting. Yay. Um this is something that, you know, the 
they were very open about, you know, Shogun World was teased at the end of season one. They're like, yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to Shogun World in season two. And then like a, a few weeks before the season premiere, they're like, we're basically setting an entire episode in Shogun World. It's going to be largely in Japanese. Uh, these are all the amazing Japanese actors that we've cast. And I was like, oh, they're going to do it. It's mm-hmm. not just like, oh, Maeve pays a visit to Shogun World. They are just going to do it. And I just... This episode, um, we talked last week about like last week's episode is my favorite episode of the season, like to be topped by this episode, which is just really the show flexing its muscle of like what it can do, the thematic things that it can do. And, um, and as you said, the fun it can have, you know, so. Yeah, it feels confident enough in itself to kind of poke fun at itself. Yeah. You know, um, and to like tweak with the kind of physics of, of the world and, um, yeah, I think it's really a clever, clever episode. Um, and or or this section of it anyway, you know, that this half of the episode of is is great. And I had just it's nice to have fun watching the show because it can get so grim. Yes. Um, and this storyline gets grim eventually, but but it's like poignant and yeah. and funny and beautiful and, and everything. Okay, so we got Team Mave, which to recap is Mave, Armistice, Sizemore, Hector, and their traveling techs, Sylvester and Felix. Uh. And when last we met, they were being attacked, uh, you know, by someone with a sword. And we find that one of those people with a sword is a character named Musashi, played by Hiroyuki Sanada, who is an actor that I, like, identify most with uh, the movie The Last Samurai and also, uh, shamefully, The Wolverine. Um, <laughs> that's a good Wolverine. No, that's a good one. That's and a good Rich- movie. Richard, what's your association with him? Uh, the five episodes of Lost that he was on. Yeah. I think he was in the final season. I couldn't tell you a single thing about who his character was because I do not remember, but I know that he was on it. Yeah, he had to do some of that thankless temple stuff, but, uh, you know. Yes, the temple stuff. We never want to pass up a Lost reference on this podcast, so... Um, he is, yeah, this is all a backdoor pilot for a Lost podcast that Joanna and I are trying to get made. <laughs> yeah, still watching so, Lost, yeah, so yeah. it's great. Um, but a uh, friend of the show, David Ehrlich, pointed out to me, who knows like way more about um, a lot of the stuff than I do, that there is a real... The character is Mus- Musashi. It's the name of this character. And there is a real person named Miyamoto Musashi, who was a famous sort of like Ronin buddhist uh writer like he did it all he was a swordsman a philosopher a writer a ronin um in the like 16th 17th century so uh that is probably that name is probably i would say a reference to that yeah. um and then um mave tries to do something that i've started calling the voice of god because which a is a did you ever read the preacher comics or see the preacher tv show at all uh the pilot and i didn't understand it uh, but- so on on in preacher and i i'm more much more familiar with the comics than i am with the show uh the character of preacher has this ability called voice of god and like any time i think it's called that anytime he speaks uh people have to do what he says uh when he when he speaks in a certain way and that's mm-hmm. i was like oh this is what mave's doing like the preacher voice of god stuff but it doesn't work because she's doing it in english and these hosts are programmed to japanese <laughs> So, um, and then she gets gagged immediately. So that's like, this, this is a, th- a fun thing that this episode has to, uh, deal with is Maeve has this superpower. How can we make sure that we can still have the plot we need right. while, you know, engaging in her superpower? So the first handicap they put on it is that she doesn't speak the language. Um, and, uh, then we start wandering, wandering through the forest. They're all captive. Uh, 
we should point out that Simon Quartermain's character, Lee Sizemore, uh, our debauched writer, is integral <laughs> to this episode because he is an exposition machine, uh, uh, like orienting us in the world of, of Shogun and uh, the Shogun world and like all the things, all the rules and all of that. Um, it's it's delivered so like with so much flair by Simon Quartermain that I just I'm I'm so grateful that they have him to do this because otherwise it could have been like really cumbersome. Like there's a moment when he um he explains something that Maeve didn't know. I yeah. think it's about geography, about where there's a hatch or something like that. Yeah. And she's like, Oh, maybe you're not so useless after all. And she gives him this little look and I was like, oh, are they like setting up a romance between them? Oh, I didn't think about that. I mean, probably not, but like, wouldn't that be kind of fun? That would be fun. It, I mean, they've seen each other naked. I really, I love their partnership. You know, we talked yeah. about this from the start when they put them together, but this episode, it like really shines. But um, I also kind of saw that as a meta commentary on like, oh, maybe you're not a useless character after all. Because like, I think mm, in season mm-hmm. one, even though Simon Quartermain's performance was fun, like they didn't really know what to do with the Sizemore character. And then like, you know, they figured it out. Just like sort of what we were saying with Teddy, like maybe they'll figure out what to do with that. This is like using this character to exactly the right ends. Uh, we get this great moment when uh, the redheaded tech Sylvester asks um, the tech Felix, like if he can like negotiate with Japanese characters and Felix goes, I'm from Hong Kong asshole, which is just like a <laughs> yeah. great little moment. Uh, and then we find out that, that this is based on the Edo period of Japan. Um, uh, you know, and they mentioned like artful gore and stuff like that. So uh, this is, this is fun. And then it gets, uh, really fun well i guess sorry the last thing i should say is that sizemore tells them all that they can actually speak japanese if they really just try hard enough and we all know that mave is going to be the one to get there first so um there we go and then, i like to think that yeah. i could speak japanese if i just believed in myself i think so or maybe if yeah. like there were a sizemore being like richard you dummy yeah. you knew <laughs> japanese all along yeah, um, right. but yeah and then we get yeah, maybe one of my favorite moments in all of Westworld history, which is a reenactment of the Sweetwater heist, but done in Shogun World. Uh, what like and their realization that it's ha- that what's happening is yeah. like so fun and funny, and he's like Sizemore's like, well, yeah, I mean, like I had to like I re- I you know reuse some stuff, sure. Yeah, but um, and, and once again, it's like all in the delivery, like um. The actress who plays Armistice, uh, it's Ingrid, I think, Bolso, I think. Uh, she's like, a mariposa? And like, just her, like, you know, her realization. Um, and then, like, realizing who they're looking at, that the Musashi character is the Hector character. Um, that the Hana, uh, Hana Rio, I'm going to fuck that up. But anyway, the, the Archer character, the like, is the Armistice character, but she's got a dragon tattoo. That reveal, the dragon tattoo instead of the snake tattoo. Like, it's just, ugh, so good. Um, and then Paint It Black is playing, like, and, and it is, like, shot for shot in some instances of that heist that we've seen at the Mariposa in season one. Um, it's so great. The I wanted to, uh, I, I tried to do, a, I'm, I'm no expert in Japanese films or Kurosawa or any of that, but I tried to do like a little research before we talked about this. And at first I was like, is it problematic that they're showing this Japanese world sort of plagiarized from this Western world? Um, And then I watched this Kurosawa documentary and realized that hopefully what they're commenting on um, 
is this thing that Kurosawa did where Kurosawa drew from all these uh, Western influences. Like he was influenced by John Ford. Uh, He really loved Russian novels. He adapted a bunch of Shakespeare. Like he was really into Western culture and like uh, restaged it beautifully, like through the Japanese lens. And then of course, all these American directors then took um, that or, or, you know, or Italian in the case of Sergio Leone, like, uh, took all of that and put it back through into the Western. And so that there was this, like, back and forth between Kurosawa and the West, like, both giving and receiving, uh, throughout his career. And so I'm kind of hoping that, you know, cause we have stuff like, um, uh, you know, the Seven Samurai and the Magnificent Seven, or, uh, it's, I think it's Yojimbo and Fistful of Dollars. Like, there's just like a few famous, Westerns that are based very clearly on Kurosawa films. And uh, I think that that's what they're trying to play with here. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and that's a kind of cultural dialogue that like, well, you know, Quentin Tarantino would be like the most frequent customer at the <laughs> these <laughs> two parts. World, yeah. well, uh, well, also the Westworld. Like yeah, he loves yeah. a Western too. So like, I just, yeah, like, um, but yeah, so that, that's, that's an, a, a sort of exchange between cultures and sort of genres that, um, it makes the, um, introduction of Shogun world after all this time in Westworld, like th- there's a natural sort of sense there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I, it's just so clever. And so then we meet um, the character of Akane, who gives the um, title of the episode, uh, played by Oscar nominee Rinko Kikuchi. Great. And so she was she was nominated for Pacific Rim, if anyone's forgotten. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Definitely yeah. her role yeah. in Pacific Rim and not Babel or Babel. Um, and then uh, the character of Sakura, played by Kiki Sukezane, and this is our Maeve and Clementine, Clementine stand-in slash like Sakura is like Clementine and also like the daughter character. She's both, yeah. right? Um, and it's just like every single person recognizing their their double or as Sizemore calls it later, their doppelbot is just so good, and like like Rinko Kikuchi's take on this like Mave dialogue that we've already seen uh, through the Japanese filter is just, uh, it's so good. So it makes me so happy. It's such a fun idea. Yeah. You know, like uh, counterpart sort of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's a little, you know, they, they, they can't, they shouldn't keep doing it like in whatever, you know, maybe they're all doubled up in, in or tripled up in you know, Raj world. But, but yeah, for this and the surprise of it, cause I really didn't see it coming was just right. like, great. Like, I, I don't know when, yeah, no, I, I just discovered it along with the episode. They don't tip their hand at all. Like, you don't think, like, the guy, you know, the Ronin that we meet is obviously a Hector figure. Like, it's not clear. And, and the Armistice character, like, keeps her hat low. Mm-hmm. Like, for, it's just oh, so good. Anyway, um, and, and, and one sort of side, uh, effect i guess of these doppelbots meeting each other is they're sort of like taken with each other like arm the armistice and hanario characters are taking are doing like some mirroring exercise or something (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, it's great they're playing theater games on the corner some udahaga and whatever um you you tweeted and i didn't know if this is a reference directly to this but you're like westworld season three should just be all the like hosts realizing that they're gay right yeah just all coming out to william (laughs) was that in reaction to this moment like it was yeah 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 yeah. yeah. Where, like I'm, I'm here for them. Like we didn't see Hanario die, unlike some other characters. So like, there's potential that she could uh, continue, and I would love for her and Armistice to be um, 
badass yeah. lady friends. All right. Um, we, you know, on, on our other podcast, Little Gold Men, we had um, BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore on to talk about sort of this recent rash of, or at least exploration of, I don't know, appropriating Asian cultures for Western consumption, pegged specifically to like Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs, but like, when is it appropriation? When is it cultural tourism? When is it like a fitting homage, stuff like that? Um, I know that Lisa Joy, who's co-creator on the show, like she's half, um, I believe it's half Chinese. She grew up in partially in Asia, at least, uh, you know, as this episode points out, Chinese is not Japanese, not the same thing. But um, what do you think? Like, did this ping your radar at all in terms of like, uh, is this not okay for this American show to do Shogun World at all? Or, or well, it's protected a bit by the conceit of the show, which is that like the show isn't doing the Orientalism; it's the it's the park doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. It's the people who want to pay to live in this kind of ultraviolent feudal fantasy. Right. Um, or I mean, you know, and so I think that it it makes sense in a way. I mean, I, I don't know that in contemporary America or in future I guess the, the park isn't in America, but like in in the world now, like I don't know that there's necessarily enough of a sort of I don't know, knowledge of of this particular period of japanese history that, that like enough people would want to pay to be in it um but yeah i think the show is sort of saying that like in a in a in a theoretical world where something like this park exists orientalism would be a part of it because it's a part of our culture you know in in the real world and sizemore sort of pitched it as like if you want westworld but you want it like a little bit more violent and more beautiful that's what Shogun World is. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, uh, you know, a, definitely a somewhat like Orientalist uh, point of view. I think I'm I think I'm glad that we didn't see as we did with Raj World or whatever, any like white guests enjoying themselves in Shogun World. Yeah, I think I'm glad that we just anchored ourselves on these hosts and their drama. And even though I'm aware that, you know, there must be a lot of problematic shit going on in this park, it, I'm, I didn't, I didn't need to see it necessarily, right. you know? I, I think that one thing that's also to remember about this is that established in the first episode of this season is that this park is on an island that is somewhere in East Asia. Yeah. Um, right. And so, and then we we have scenes, um, you know, with Dolores in, in a party dress at a party it, that seems to be set in some sort of Asian city. And yet we don't have it. We didn't see a lot of Asian actors or characters in that in those scenes. So I think that if the show is running into any problems in, in terms of its own itself, it's there. Um, but in, in, in the kind of sort of more particular context of the show's narrative, um, yeah, I think like I I don't think that we're we're in the problematic territory, but like you know, but please tell us if we're wrong about that. If you have I mean, thoughts about it, we're yeah. two white people asking if this is problematic. So you know, yeah. please please do tell us if we're way off base. But I, I I like what you have to say that about that though about the um the future modern world it's set in because that that's another interesting conversation that's been cropping up I think among film critics that we know and like in terms of 
this interrogation of why so many films are set in an Asian-ish future without any actual Asian characters in it, right? right. Like Blade yeah. Runner is a good example of that and stuff like that, where you've got like all the signs are in like some, you know, some sort of like Asian characters, stuff like that, but you don't have any actual like Asian people uh, represented there. And that feels like cultural tourism and appropriation. And um, so to have these great Japanese actors, I think, uh, you know, uh, Rinka Kuchi is, I just, well, I'll stop gushing about her. I just think she's great. But um, yeah, to have them here means like they want to really, I think, do it, you know, do it right. Yeah. Okay. So um, we, there's a, you know, basically uh, the script is that like um, the Shogun wants uh, Sakura and Sizemore's like, Akane cannot say no, Sakura has to go. And then uh, Akane stabs the Shogun's representative in the eye and Maeve's like, gosh, she did have a choice, darling. Like, whatever. Here we are. We're off the map. Um, and... Uh, you know, so then they're on a new narrative where the Shogun's going to be pissed that they denied him the geisha and they're going to go on the run and they don't get a chance to do that. First, there's a ninja attack and then like the Shogun like sends his, uh, you know, basically army into town to get them. Uh, we should, you know, I'm, I'm buzzing through this a little bit quickly because I think like the last set piece is, is the most interesting, but like, you yeah. know, it's fun that we had a ninja attack, some sword fights, um, Maeve unlocked. <laughs> A new power, which is yeah, she leveled up. Yeah, she can. She doesn't need her voice in order to get people to do stuff. Uh, my takeaway from this is like, uh, that's a power she unlocked, but she doesn't have full control over it yet, right? No, maybe well, by she's dark phoenixing. Yeah, you know. Ooh, yeah. Um, I love that. Um, but but like in terms of the tech, like the the thing is that they're all connected on some sort of like neural network, right? So that's what yeah. kind of. That's what she's tapping into. Yeah, they call it the mesh network. Uh, right. That's what Bernard called it. So yeah, I imagine that it has something to do with that. But um, she's not magic. No, they call her a witch, but she's not. Uh, she's not magic, but she's just unlocked some new access to code. And and once again, that's that's a little problematic because only because it makes her almost too powerful. So we'll see sort of how they grapple with that degree of power. You know. Yeah. Um. But we've got. Great stuff for the Musashi character, you know, like, uh, as Akane is like, I'm hiring myself a Ronin. He goes and squares off against his, like, old lieutenant. Like, that's really fun stuff uh, that happens in the streets. And when that happens, Maeve, the tech, Sizemore, and Akane escape because Sakura has been taken by the ninjas and they're off to go get to rescue Sakura. And... Uh, there's this scene uh, that I just wanted to pause on really quickly between Sizemore and Maeve where Sizemore is like, why are you doing this to rescue a sex bot with no like ability to read the room of who he's talking to? Um, and Maeve says like, you can't keep doing this. You can't keep probing us to love something and then like be surprised when we do. Uh, what did you make of this like pause and interaction here on this? I, I think, it, you know, I, I think it's, helpful in terms of um putting some borders i guess a little bit on Maeve's narrative you know because mm -hmm. like she was all set to leave the park and at the end of season one but then was like no i want to go back for my daughter even though she knows it's not really her daughter and so i think it just like feeds into her like emotional motivation where she's like you know my part of my evolution is you know it is yes tethered to hardwired to what you gave me it's not you know um she's not inventing herself whole cloth she's just reacting and expanding upon the sort of motivations that were imprinted on her yeah 
Um, I completely agree. And it, I think it once again positions her against uh, Dolores where she's like, right. this is all about her being enormously empathetic to her fellow host, putting her own like mission to the side to help these women because she sees herself in them. Once again, I think this feeds back both into what we talked about last week with like Bill learning empathy for the hosts, seeing himself in Lawrence and Lawrence's daughter and his wife and stuff like that. So like Maeve literally seeing herself, I mean, the park made it easy for her by showing her her double in Akane, but like seeing herself and these people pausing to help them. Whereas Dolores is like, Teddy, get like, you're either with me or you're against me or like, get out of my way. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a pretty stark contrast there. Um, then we, you know, they they infiltrate the Shogun camp. They've got this dubious plan because I think Sizemore is like posing as a Chinese dignitary, Akane as his wife, and Maeve as their translator. Um, we find out that the show another like handicap on Maeve is that the Shogun has has uh, burned out the ear holes of all of his uh, daimyos, like his his men, uh, so she can't control them with her voice, and she hasn't fully got control of the tele- telepathy yet. Um, and then the, we find out the Shogun isn't awoke; he's broken. He's crazy. Uh, yeah. he's, got, he's got that stuff oozing out of his ear, like Bernard did. So he's like this crazy uh, despot sort of figure which is fun um and then we you know and so sorry i don't mean to like blaze through everything but like uh, i really want to get to this dance because i think that's the showstopper of the episode like basically we've got this great back uh behind the scenes uh moment where akane and sakura are getting ready akane and mave um are really like relating they have the same backstory and mave kind of tries to wake akane up and akane doesn't really seem to want it which you I thought was I mean? kind of, um, and then and then Maeve respected it. Yeah, you know, yeah. which I thought was like a really interesting. Um, now that we're getting this kind of like intra robot socializing, yeah, like that. Yeah, maybe some people wouldn't want to be, you know, or, or some hosts wouldn't want to be. You know, they'll they'll get a glimpse of it and they're like, no, no, no I don't want to forget all of this stuff that like I believe to be real. You know, I I, I don't want I I want to just like dwell in in the programming, which like, you know, okay, that's your choice to make. And she and Maeve respects that and is like, fair enough. Yeah. Um I mean, then it comes to uh you know, kind of a kind of like then later has to make a different decision, but you know. But in that moment she's trying being. to hold on yeah. to her bond to Sakura, like who is this daughter figure to her, and is worried that like it seems I agree with you, it seems like she's worried that if she wakes up she won't like have um that anymore. Uh and then and then we get this this amazing beautiful scene where we've got Maeve sitting next to the Shogun watching Sakura and uh, Akane take the stage the Shogun kills Sakura and then Akane does this dance that ends with her sawing the guy's head in half like I think we all kind of knew that she's gonna do her dance and then stab him I definitely didn't see her like jamming her like hair dagger into the side of his face and then just sawing around running a little circle Yeah, <laughs> with like it's a gruesome. great sound effect, uh, and and like beautiful blood spatters on her, like gorgeous kimono. Um, yeah, this like you know, if you want to talk about the blend of um, beauty, art, and violence, that's exactly what this is, right? Um, it's just so so gorgeous and great, and and there's this uh, something to be said, I think, for the masks, the literal like masks that um, Akane Sakura wear for a lot of the episode, and 
what Rinko Kikuchi does with her face when Sakura dies and her face sort of half contorts in grief. And then she has to like still her features yeah. back back into the mask and do the dance. Um, it was just uh, like really, really incredible. And then Maeve, uh, you know, gets back her telepathy, I guess, conveniently when she needs it most. Yeah, she's turning into Lucy, Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> Yeah, she's, yeah, she's gone limitless, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, she exactly. tur- she turns all the Shogun's men on each other, and it's just this great shot. It's like a tight close up on like I think it's Maeve and Akane, or at least just Maeve, and you've just got geysers of CGI blood like going behind, just her. like yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> just like fonts yeah. of it, and that's uh, I think a little Kurosawa e where you just got like gushes of blood going and the show just like really loves Maeve it they it loves Tandy Newton yeah and they give her so much fun stuff to do and I just felt like that that's that slow-mo shot with the blood they were like yeah let's just revel in it you know yeah um and that line she has where she says Akana you are a true mother um as they're about to get beheaded is so good and and this goes back to something I mentioned last week where like yeah the show is interested in motherhood this is like its exploration of motherhood and I think it does it really well I think I'm really glad that um, this show is co-run by a woman I think it's really evident in stuff like this where just have like not that men can't write um, interesting plots for women but just sort of like everything that happens between these two women between these two mothers you know and and I just I think Westworld really nailed it. And the episode ends with like more soldiers are coming and <laughs> you know, Maeve picks up her sword and she's just sort of like, I, you know, I I have telepathy now. I'm dark phoenixing, I'm loosing, I'm limitlessing, like come at me, bro, basically. I love it. Um I told you I found a new voice, now we use it. Uh one thing I skipped over by accident is that um they saw a bunch of Delos texts strung up in trees and Sizemore, oh, yeah. Sizemore grabbed a radio. So we can only assume that will be important later. Um, and so we should recap who's still alive from the Shogun world. And that is a Akane. Uh, Musashi, I mean, as far as we know, Musashi's still alive and Hanario's still alive. It's really just Sakuro who did not make it out alive. But we don't know where Hector and Armistice are. Exactly. Hector, Armistice, right. Musashi, like all of those people who did their like stand against the Shogun people, we don't know where they are. Hopefully, like, Maeve gets them in the, the next episode, but we don't know. So, once again, she left Hector behind to, yep. like, he really is her teddy. You know what I mean? Yep. <laughs> like, yep. um, but she's, I hope, not going to reprogram him. Okay. Is there anything else you want to say about this episode before we. Um. No, I think it's great. I I I I I chatted you when I was watching this episode, and I was like, Joanna, this is just a really good show, and it really is. It I really is. like it. And yeah. I and I got that response from a lot of like TV critics, specifically to this episode. It's just it's such an ambitious swing, and I was like a little skeptical about whether or not they would nail it, and I really think they nailed it. So yeah. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q and A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. For further insight on this week's episode, we have an interview with Simon Quarterman, who plays Lee Sizemore. We are joined today by Simon Quarterman, who plays Lee Sizemore on Westworld. 
Simon, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. I was talking to um, the actor Jonathan Tucker for an earlier episode, and he said that when he got the script for the season, that it was sort of like a redacted FBI file, that all these parts were blocked out, and it was just sort of his lines. Um, he's a, Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay, he's recurring in your regular, so are you telling me that the regular regular cast doesn't have to navigate such a heavily edited mm-hmm. script? Mm-hmm. No, we don't. We don't. Uh, we don't have to navigate that. We we get um, if we're in the episode, we'll get the we'll get the epi- whole episode. But if we're not in the episode, then we won't get it. That's the kind of way it works. So there's um, episodes that I don't know anything about. And what's that experience life? Not going into the season having episodes where you know nothing about them. Um. Well, it kind of it kind of works. Um. Um, in a lot of ways because you get to just concentrate on your own arc, you know? Um, and uh, I, I know a lot of actors on the, uh, on the show kind of like have been kind of frustrated that they didn't have that, that much information. And um, I, I actually quite enjoy not having that much information because you just get to, you just get to, you know, just live it as you get it, you know, so it becomes more, um, you just get to react, you know, there's no, there's no planning really. Um, you know, unlike doing a movie where you, you've got, you've got your through line, you know, what's going to be happening in the beginning, middle and end and you, you plan, but, uh, with this show, there, there is no planning. It's just about doing. <laughs> yeah. I think that works well, especially for your character this season, who's so often disoriented, and plunged into unfamiliar. Yeah, completely. Yeah. yeah, and it's not, it's not a place he wants to be at all. But, um, you know, that's, that's half the fun of it. Um, and something that fans of this character will have noticed is that the show keeps pairing you with these great tough women. First, Teresa, Charlotte, now Maeve. Um, what do you think it is about the, the Sizemore character that invites those those couplings? Um, well, I think it's a lot to do with calming that bloated male ego of his, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and bringing it more into submission. Um, it seems to be, you know, that he's constantly being deflated and emasculated by these, uh, very strong women. And it's, and it's, uh, it's, it's great. It's great fun you know, to, to play with that. My favorite, one of my favorite revelations of the season related to your character is what we learned in episode three, that you've created the, the Hector character as sort of an idealized version of yourself. Yeah. What did you think when you read that in the script? Well, you, you know, it's funny because I've always seen, um, me as beings and, and Maeve actually hits on it on that, in that scene too. Um, I'm being very fragile. You know, often um, in general, these, these uh, any man with this, this big, you know, big ego, you know, is very sensitive. It's often harboring a lot of insecurity, you know, and um, and and I think that just plays out in his writing and you know, wanting to create what he deems and what he feels is the kind of like the perfect male archetype, and that being Hector, you know strong, tough, takes no shit. You know, just in that, you just see 
you know, this the, uh, a softer side of him, maybe just from that very that, that, that little, um, uh, you know, go um, back and forth between Maeve and Lee. That would be we just get to see a little glimpse of of, of the cracks in his armor. You have so much expositional heavy lifting to do this season and then in, in this episode, <laughs> episode five specifically. What are some of the challenges that have yes. just like delivering constantly the worlds of the universe? Oh, yeah. God. Yes. Yeah. It's <laughs> funny you should mention that. You know, the first scene, one of the first scenes when we were actually walking into Shogun World and I just had this, you know, I knew what I needed to do was, you know, set the scene of choke on what what this was and it's like okay so how how can i do this without it sounding just like a just a load of exposition which of course it is so it's it's one of the most challenging things to do i think as an actor is kind of like making any type of exposition kind of interesting you know you want you want to engage the audience best you can and uh without going going crazy yourself so there were a couple of moments during that where I was like banging my head against the wall going, how am I, because Maeve as well is next to me. We were trying to work out how best to do it because at the start, it was just like me just walking along and just talking sort of like just to everyone. And yeah. then we decided that what was going to make it um, easier to be deliver was this to be kind of all to Maeve. You know, this was to explain everything to Maeve and that, and that really helped. That really helped the process, and uh, and um, uh, you know, trying to establish this world before we walked into it. But I've read some really lovely interviews with you where you just effusively praise working with Tandy Newton to the sky. But I'm wondering if you yeah. can talk about what a performer like Tandy Newton can give you when she's bound and gagged, like with just her eyeballs. What what does she do oh, to help you through that oh, scene? God. <laughs> Listen, I mean, I, I mean, I'll probably as much to Tandy chagrin. I'll complete. I'll I'd play the till the cows come home. Really, I mean, she's um, uh, it, it was you know just such a an, an honor to work with her. Honestly, um, she's she's an extraordinary actress. I mean, she's uh, so um, she's so giving. You know, and even when she's bound and gagged. She's just giving you everything that she can possibly um, give you. There's nothing. There's not self. There's nothing selfish about her. Um, about um, her process. You know, it's um, it's all about bringing out the best thing in the scene, and and and, and that means everyone in it. You know, um, it's never about her, and um, that's what um, allowed me to play. You know, and for all of us to play, and I think we were all, you know, in our little group, um, we were just so uh, supportive of one another. So I want to say that this episode, episode five, uh, is my far and away my favorite episode of Westworld to date. Oh, good. Um, That's fun. Oh, good. Which is how I felt about episode four, season two, and then episode five rolled along, and and you know, it's just it's just on an upward track but i was yeah i was curious um there was some conversation around this before the the season kicked off because there's been so much conversation in hollywood and in film and tv criticism about cultural appropriation and orientalism and all of that if you had any trepidation initially about being part of 
the Shogun World plotline in Westworld season two? No, not at all. Um, the reason being is because I know that, that you know, the journal Lisa and the, and the rest of the crew and the, the attention to detail mm-hmm. and the respect of the culture was unbelievable. We had people, um, we had people there te- teaching us how to, you know, to teach us how to drink the tea, you know, like and how the tea was placed to us. When Maeve and I were watching uh, Sakura um, dance, we just finished watching the dance, and there's a little tea, a little tea um, ceremony going on. We were getting, getting, getting tea, and you know, there was a, there was someone there, like you knew exactly how to do all of that. You know, we, so there was. Um, it, it was very important to all of us that um, that, it, that the culture was respected hugely, um, and the um, you know the, the, the incredible actors here and Minko um, just you know astonishing. And then Hero always came in on a day off as well to make sure that you know that everything was going on. You know, it was just just right. And there's so much commentary in this episode that feels like it's about cultural appropriation, white cultural appropriation of Japanese culture, the way in which you have the Mariposa heist sort of carbon copied over from Westworld world into Shogun world and all that sort of stuff. So circling back to your role as exposition giver in this episode, it feels almost intentional to have the Sizemore character, the the white British character, uh, explain the rules of this world. Yes. I think he's beginning to also find that he's becoming a, becoming a value to others, you know? Um, and the, 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 he's, he's actually kind of getting quite excited about being there, even though they're in this pretty, you know, intense situation. Um, he still knows what's going on because he's written it, you know? And um, that moment when, you know, uh, um, Hector, um, Hector is... Buying um, Musashi and saying, you know, he wants to, uh, uh, you know, skin him like a dog or whatever. Um, it's, it's kind of exciting to, to me, you know. He's finding himself kind of becoming a bit of a service to others, you know, by being able to explain what's going on and also explain the whole world and how it's all orchestrated and how it all, you know, works. It's, uh, it's exciting for him. There's so many variations of what you get to do in this episode. There's there's a tremendous amount of stillness. Then you've got some action, um, all this sort of stuff. What was the toughest part? Tammy got really sick during this um, episode. So I, I got really ill as well. So there were a couple of rough days because of that. Um, other than that, the the night shoots at the old um, at um, the Shogun's camp. They got pretty cold, but you know, it was, it was, you know, it was just that. It was actually, it was actually um, kind of extreme, really, because Shogun's camp during the day when we had to kneel in front of, like, Shogun, and, you know, we, oh, my God, it was so hot. We were just getting baked, and, it, I mean, it was uh, fat, <laughs> just being on your knees and getting baked. I mean, it's like, it's like it's such a small thing, but... Uh, you know, after after about the fourth or fifth hour, it started to get a little intense, you know. <laughs> so that was probably the most challenging part of it. 
And then you've got, like, maybe as part of that, you've got this amazing costume change you get to do in this episode um, where you get to wear this <laughs> yeah. incredible robe. Did it, was that a, a robe that didn't breathe very well? Is that part of the, the heat discomfort in that scene? Oh, God. I mean, yeah, I think it was just, it was just so hot that time because we were out in Santa Clarita and I think it was more like 100, it was in the hundreds somewhere, 106 or something. It was, it was hot. It was really hot. And I did, it didn't matter what I was wearing. If I was wearing a kind of jock strap and a, and a vest, I think I'd still be in the same position. um and then just sort of i i'm definitely not fishing for spoilers for any future episodes at all but i'm curious you know maybe up through five or just in general what you think the most interesting themes um are that are being explored in season two of westworld Hmm. um It's kind of, you know, the, the word discovery comes to, to mind, you know. Um, I can't really go any deeper than that, but um, it, it certainly is a very, you know, um, for me anyway, and uh, it's, it's a constant, you know, uh, constant, constant discovery. You know, so in many ways, I can't get I can't get too deep into this. No, I'm, I, 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 I know <laughs> that there are. <laughs> I know that there are, are lasers trained on you right now, in case you. Yeah, they are. Well, is that? Um, I guess that's that's another question. Is like you know, we already talked about uh, redacted or non-redacted scripts, but this is a show that is you know, like a lot of high-profile popular entertainment these days, so yeah. shrouded in mystery, mystery and secrecy. Um, what is being yeah. part of part of a project like that where you have to be so careful about every little thing? What is, what is oh. that like? Oh, my word. It's, uh, it's you know, you, you can get off the phone sometimes, you've been in an interview, and you're, oh, and because you know, because you know something, and you say something that's so kind of like, yeah, oh God, so general. But because the, you know what where that's coming from, suddenly you can create a story that you've managed to just let everything out of the bag. And obviously, to anyone else, it's, you've just said a couple of things that mean absolutely nothing. But uh, but it's it, it's that's kind of like the one main stress. You just you think that you, you you've dropped you've dropped the old uh, you've dropped the ball, but in fact you kind of haven't because it's. It's it's complex the show obviously and uh, the great thing is is that also I don't fully understand everything so it's, I'm I'm pretty good about um, keeping things close to my chest and in fact actually when when when, uh, when you when you're shooting these scripts because they are so so complex because there are so many um, like. Um, story um so many arcs going on and so many timelines going on you tend to you tend to kind of just gravitate towards what you're up to you know and that kind of like is what goes in you know so it's when i'm watching the show i'm a lot of it i'm watching it for the first time even though i've read the scripts which Absolutely. helps yeah <laughs> 
I like the different reactions to this sense of disorientation. You know, I think, I think one of my favorites is Zev and Rachel Wood, who's like so hell bent on figuring out the puzzles of the season. And it's sort of like agitated and frustrated. And you're just like, oh, it helps my performance to be generally confused because that's where my character is, you know? Yeah, and you know, and also, I'm pretty useless at the whole guessing of what's going on. <laughs> I, did, I did try for a bit, and I got it so disastrously wrong, I gave up, I like, hung up my boots for that, and I'm not, I'm not even going to bother, I'm just going <laughs> to leave that, leave it all to it, leave everyone to it, I'm just going to get on with this and uh, <laughs> try to get through it best I can. <laughs> The revelation of these new worlds, we get Westworld, then we got the Raj in episode three, and now we've got Shogun mm-hmm. World. It really highlights the way in which um, this Delos Incorporated park helps people indulge in these power fantasies, which we already knew about Westworld, but the way in which sort of the subjugation of race and gender seems to play a part of it um, is so interesting to me and i was wondering if you had any thoughts on that or conversations around which specific cultures uh that you guys have decided to explore in these various other worlds well i I think you know to to me to me the um west world and all these parks are really the playground for the human ego to go to go wild you know Mm -hmm. it's that it's that it's that side of ourselves um that you know that we might not want to admit we have, you know, because um, the more difficult sort of side of us, and it, it's it's a place for it to just go wild and go rampant, do whatever it wants. I think you know you, you with these differing worlds, you're going to depend dependent on the type of person that you are. You're going to gravitate towards. You know, large world, West world, as Shogun world, as um, as Lee says at the start, this is for the connoisseur of like artful gore. You know, mm-hmm. this is the place where people are going to go and get the most visceral and intense um, experience they can get. You know, this isn't people getting shot. This is people getting disemboweled. You know, this is people's you know, being cut up in a lot of ways. It's kind of like there's something there's something more even more extreme than say the West World. The Raj World, it's what we see from it in, in episode three is more of a there's an uh, it, it's you know, the it, um, the British colonization of India, you know. Um so it's it's there's a more of a genteel sort of feel to it. Um so it, I think it's all dependent on where, you know, you are on that egoic spectrum of where you're going to go. You know, if you're just sort of like some completely like, there's a lot of rage in you and you want to get out, get off to old showdown world, maybe. <laughs> you know, I think it, I think it caters for, you know, whatever you choose, you, you can do whatever you please anyway. So, uh, <laughs> maybe it's just a sort of like, if you want to see an elephant or not. um all right well (laughs) my my last question for you and once again i am aware of the lasers trained on you and i'm not i'm not trying to get you in trouble at all Uh, um obviously we see lee sizemore reach for and grab this sort of walkie-talkie comms device um in in the episode uh (laughs) what at all do you want to say about that 
Absolutely nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely nothing. There's nothing you can do to get them out of me. Fair enough. Well, thought I'd try. You tried that. Well, thank you so much for this time. I really appreciate it. It's delightful to have you. Thanks so much, John. I'd love to chat into it. All right. Um, well, we will be back next week. I'm not sure exactly when because this is when our screeners run out. So, yeah, we're in. We're in. You know, we're in the wild now. <laughs> what is? What is the? What is it that Jim Della says? Like we're, we're all the way at the bottom now, or whatever it is. Um, we're in the valley beyond, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So this this episode, next week's episode, might come to you a little later than Sunday night, but uh, we will try to get it out to you as soon as we can. And. In the meantime, Richard, where can people find you? Um, VanityFair.com, um, usually in the reviews section, and on Twitter at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. Joanna, where are you? Uh, I'm also on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can hear the two of us talking about a lot of other stuff over on the podcast, Little Gold Men. This episode was engineered by Danielle Roth, produced by Dave Gonzalez and Katie Rich. Thanks so much, and we will see you next time. These violent delights and violent ends. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.